Appreciate the good testimonies, good song tonight. And uh, glad the Lord knows how to help us right where we're at. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me if you would to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. It's hard to believe, but we are entering in the home stretch of Zechariah. This is um, the Bible's, uh, Zechariah, not the Bible, but the book is broken up into about three sections, and uh, this is the last section that we're entering into, and so it's been a challenging book to preach sometimes. He's, Zechariah, of course, the prophecies and so forth sometimes are a challenge, but I really feel like the Lord's revealed a lot to us this book, and um, you pray for me as I'm praying for the mind of the Lord for uh, the Sunday evenings as soon as we finish this book. Uh, well, I'm sure um, the Lord will have us start another one, but I don't know which one it is yet, so you pray for me as, as we try to get the mind of the Lord for that. Zechariah chapter 12, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is another one of those in-depth prophecies. And this one hasn't happened yet, at least we don't think so. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel. I think you almost have to be a preacher or a prophet to appreciate that opening phrase. Maybe a Sunday school teacher. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel. Saith the Lord which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundations of the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people around about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment, and his rider with madness. I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah, and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength, and the Lord of hosts their God. In that day will I make the governors of Judah like an her, excuse me, hearth of fire among the wood, and like a torch of fire and a shafe, and they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left, and Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even Jerusalem. The Lord shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. And the house of David shall be as God and the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced 
and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of Hadnarimon, and in the valley of Migdon. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, and the family of Shimei apart, and their wives apart, and all the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. Father, we are so small, and you are so great, and we are dependent upon you for every breath and every word. We ask that you'd anoint us one more time. Be glorified. Be glorified, we pray. In precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's a terrible day that's coming. Zechariah says that all the nations are going to gather against Jerusalem. Every nation's going to rise up. Every nation is going to just be sick of Israel. It's hard to imagine that, isn't it? It's kind of hard to imagine all the nations angry with one nation, and, and really, especially it being Israel. I mean, I can kind of get it if it's Iran or, or North Korea. I kind of get it if it's maybe even China and some of their uh, human rights violations and, and some of the ways that they've been treating other religions, and especially Christianity. And, and I, I, I maybe can get it with some of them, but, but Israel garners so much hate. And for what reason? You really, if, if you don't have the Bible, it'd be really hard to understand. It'd be really hard to, to put a finger on why so many nations hate Israel. And we find it raising in our, in our own nation there more and more people are vocal about their hatred of the country of Israel. And I don't understand it. I don't know why, other than that, that they're God's people. And, and the world has always had a problem with God's people. Whether it's, whether it's been the, uh, the people of Abraham, and, uh, or if, whether it's been Christians, the world has ha always taken issue with God's people. People that are of the world have a natural distaste, a natural anger and hatred for the people of God. I really don't understand it. I really can't explain it. I'm thankful that I didn't have that. I'm, I'm thankful that, that even when I wasn't serving the Lord, that I saw something attractive about God's people. And I knew that, that was, those were the kind of people that I wanted to be like. But I suppose, I suppose that really there's two kinds of people in the world. They see someone that, uh, that is serving God and doing well, and they either say, that's what I want to be like, or they get angry because they, they know it costs too much. And all the world gathers around, and they decide that they are going to drink Israel as from a cup. They decide that, that, that Israel has been a burden to them. It's like carrying a stone on their back. 
And so they have decided that they are going to do something about it. And so they drink Israel and they find themselves sick to their stomach. Ever eat something or drink something and immediately regret it? And the stone that they have been under the burden is going to cut them in pieces. The Bible scholars that I read after pretty well agree that this is probably in reference to the Battle of Armageddon. In fact, chapters 12, 13, and 14 all deal with this one event that has yet to happen. And I'll be honest with you, I don't understand it all. I look at it and I go, I don't see too many nations using horses anymore. Is, is their fighter jets, their instrument panels all of a sudden not going to work anymore? Are their tanks not going to work? I just read this week that, that every British tank comes with service for tea. Isn't that handy? I prefer coffee, but, but man, I tell you what, if you like tea, join the British uh, tank brigade, I guess. I mean, are they suddenly going to, their, their tea set, they're going to blow up and they're not going to be able to see where they're going? I don't know how it's going to work. And you can, we can read this and we can say, you know what, I don't get it. And do you know what often happens is when we're studying God's word, when we're doing our devotions, and uh, if we even bother to read a book like Zechariah, we read through it, we go, I don't get it, move on to the next chapter. There are, there are some truths tonight that I want to share from, to, with you that I think we can easily see in this passage. And I'm going to guess that tonight none of them will take you by surprise, that none of them will be the first time you've ever heard it. But oftentimes the way we learn is repetitions. And the first thing that I see in this passage is that in the midst of trouble, we often forget who God is. It struck me in that first verse how Zechariah is having to tell the people that he's prophesying who the Lord is. He's the one that stretched forth the heavens. He's the one that formed the soul in man. Zechariah, why do you have to do that? Why didn't you just say the Lord has given me this burden and this is what he has to say? Why does he have to say to us who God is, what he's accomplished, what he's done? It's because we are forgetful. When the burdens come, when the problems show up, when we're surrounded by our enemies. Do you know what's amazing to me? We stop singing about how big our God is and we start we start fretting over how little our God is. We start, we start seeing the problems pile up. We see the bills and, and, and the financial need. And, and we forget that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We forget it. When we have an issue with, our, uh, with a relationship, a problem with an individual, we forget that God and through the Holy Spirit can talk people, to people and how God has the ability to shape and turn the hearts of even kings. We forget about it. We get so focused in on our problem that God goes to the back of our mind. 
And the problem becomes so big and so insurmountable. And you know what? The thing we look at takes up all of our vision. The thing that we look at, we focus in on it, we can blot out the sun with a quarter if I put it up close enough to your eye. And as powerful as the sun is, as bright as it is, we can blot it out with a simple quarter. All because of its closeness to our eye. And what so often happens in our lives is the problem gets so big because we're so close to it. We are close to the problem. It's one of the reasons that, that counselors have a job is because they're not as close to the problem. You know what's frustrating to me as a counselor? Sometimes I go to get counsel. You know, I do, but this is what frustrates me. They'll say to me, what would you tell somebody if you were counseling them? I've had that happen more than once. I quit going to those people once they say that to me. You know why? I'm too close to the problem. When it's my problem, and it's flooding my vision, I can't see a way around it. I can't see a way through it. I can't. That's why I'm calling you. If I was smart enough to figure out how to help myself, I wouldn't have called you up for advice. Now, I know good, and, and there have been times I've, been, I've told my wife, I said, if it, this were somebody else's problem, I'd know how to help them. Frustrated that I don't know how to solve my own problem, and I know good and well if this was somebody else's problem, I could counsel them, I could help them. But because it's in front of my vision, and it's easy for mountains or for uh, molehills to become mountains because we get right up close to it. And we forget all about who God is and how mighty He is and how strong He is and how powerful He is. And sometimes part of the reason we get there is because God allows the problem to go a, long, a lot longer than we want him to let it go. We want God to stop the problem. We want him to, to put the brakes on. We want him to, to, to deal with the issue right away. Zechariah tells us that they, the enemies of Israel are going to have some victory. In, in fact, in, verses, uh, in chapters 13 and 14, we're going to see... The nations of the world are going to have some victories. Some awful things are going to happen to the people of Jerusalem. They're going to experience some terror. They're going to experience some things that when I read about it, I say, oh God. I couldn't watch the people that I love go through that. How can you, who is a perfect father, how are you that says that you're married to your people? How can you watch that? I can't watch that. And you know what the answer is? God's not like me. God isn't like me. And because, and this is terrible, 
But here's the thing. We set ourselves as the moral compass for God. And when God doesn't measure up to our moral compass, we must believe that God isn't good. And how often do we hear people who are not serving God or people who, who don't want to believe God's word, maybe they're, they want to be Christians, but they don't want to believe everything in God's word, and they say, if God was like that, he must be evil. And do you know what? I can't force my morality on God, I have to accept his morality upon myself. How can God allow Noah's flood to destroy the whole world? He killed all those thousands of people, millions of people. He killed them. Man, if a person killed those millions of people, he'd be treated like Adolf Hitler. My morality doesn't apply to God. And we forget who he is. God has the authority because he is the one who gave us life. And he has in his hand the right to give it and to take it. And I don't know why God allows his people to suffer so. I wish I could just give you the answers. But this I do believe, that when we get to heaven and we see God's plan from beginning to end, when we start being able to piece it all together, and it's amazing to, to listen to Bible scholars as they talk about the, from Genesis all the way to Revelations and, and how God takes and weaves these themes for all the way through the Bible. It's just amazing to me. And, when, and I have to believe that, that one day at the end of time, and, I've, and when we get to see how God worked all the way from the first day of creation until the last day of time, that we're going to stand back in awe of his great plan. Do you know what the, no, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know what that was about? That is about man and women having the ability to declare something God says is good as evil and what God says is evil to declare it good. And this is the great challenge that we face, even as Christians, to remember who he is and what he declares is good, it's good, whether we like it or not. And if he declares it as evil, it is evil, whether we like it or not. Sometimes I wish that what he's doing in my life, and I'm saying, man, this is bad. Lord, this is bad, what's happening. And the, you know what the Lord is say, trying to tell me and trying to teach us? If he's allowed it, it's good. If he's allowed it into my life, if he's, if he's uh, uh, permitted this, this difficulty, this storm, this, this trial, this, this tribulation into my life, this is why Paul says to be thankful in all things. Because it's good. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about, what about the cancer diagnosis? What about, what about people losing their jobs and their homes? Isn't that bad? If God says it's good, it's good. And I know that sounds cruel and hard, but we keep forgetting who God is. And this is why Someone can praise God in the midst 
of losing their home and they can praise God in the midst of losing a loved one, in the midst of their grief. They can praise God because in the midst of what all, everyone is declaring is bad, God is saying, this is good. You say, preacher, what about this situation? Listen, there's some... Ex- there, that there's no way that I could try to twist it and fix it to something that seems bad to make it into something good. Child that's born with Down syndrome or autism or, or some of these other things. I mean, I can't tell you why that's good. I don't have the ability to do that. I just have to trust the one who is the creator of the universe that if he declares it good, that it is good. That's where faith steps in. It's about declare, that saying, you know what? I reject my ability to declare things good and evil. I trust the one who formed the heavens and formed my soul into my body. That he knows what's good for me even when I have other ideas. And I can tell you, in my life, there have been many, 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 many things that I had other ideas about what was good for me. And do you know what? It probably won't take this whole week before I'll find something and I'll go, well, that's bad. And the Lord will probably just remind me of what I'm preaching tonight. It's our default. We forget who God is in the midst of our trials. In the midst of our battles and our storms, we forget who he is. The second thing that I find that's amazing is that God doesn't need our help in our battles. You know, I, I'm looking at this and, you know, the, the, all the nations have gathered around and they're going to, they're going to destroy Israel once and for all. They're, they're done with them and... All the nations are going to destroy them. And we know this isn't World War II because half the world was for them. You know, it frightens me a little bit as I was reading this. That, that tells me that even the United States is going to be against them. That makes, me, that makes me uncomfortable. If the United States is still a nation, when this happens, it says all the people. Makes me a little nervous about the direction that we're headed in. And they brought their technology, they brought their horses, they brought their tanks, they brought their, their uh, aircraft, they, I don't know, maybe they brought their satellites, they're going to zap them from space, I don't know what all they're doing. They've got their navy, they're shooting missiles off from their ships. And Israel is saying, we don't, there's nothing we can do. There's absolutely nothing we can do. We, we can't defend ourselves against the whole world. Some time ago I read a report about if all the world attacked the United States. And it was determined that this was a military scientist. He believed that if the United States acted extremely quickly... uh, moved their people very quickly and made the certain attacks on on key resources that the United States could hold out. We couldn't win, but we could be in a deadlock that we wouldn't lose. And the United States has a lot of resources. We spend more on defense than the rest, pretty well, the rest of the world combined. But little Israel? 
Wow. They don't have bases all over the world. They don't have, they don't have subs lurking in the oceans to be able to do what we can do. Little Israel can't do anything at all. And God says, you know what? I don't need your help. <laughs> I don't need your help. I'm going to astonish the horses. I'm going to, I'm going to make them blind. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to work. I'm going to move. And, and I'm going to cause that the whole world, they are going to be cut in pieces while my people are okay. You know, we like to help God, don't we? If you've started reading your Bible through this year, you've already read probably of Sarah realizing that Abraham needs an heir, recognize that, that God had promised an heir, and, and so Sarah thought she'd help God out. Said, why don't you go into Hagar? Why don't, we, why don't we help God out? We can solve this problem. Because God needs a hand. God can't do it by himself. Now, we don't quite say it that way, do we? We wouldn't quite go that far. But you know, oftentimes in our trials, in our, uh, in our, in our battles, we, the more we try to do, the more mess we make. You ever see somebody get stuck in the mud? And I mean, they're spinning their wheels and spinning their wheels, and they're digging deeper and deeper and deeper. Some time ago, when, when we were pastoring up in New York, there, in the midst of a snowstorm, one of the vans, they had the 15 passenger vans, one of them had gotten parked too far in and gotten stuck under the ground. And as the snow and stuff was melting, it made mud. And so when they tried to get that rear wheel vehicle out, it just dug deeper and deeper and deeper. And we had to get out jacks, and I forget all what we had to do, but it became a job to pull that vehicle out of the mud, to get it out, because the more effort that we tried, to, that the driver would put into it, the stucker he got, if stucker is the word. <laughs> Good thing I don't have an English teacher in here. At least I don't think so. <laughs> you know, we... We, we like to rely on our own strength and our own knowledge and our own wisdom. And it isn't until Israel finally says, the governors and the leadership says, there's nothing we can do that God shows up and he does mighty things. You know, the Bible doesn't say God helps those who help themselves. I believe that was Benjamin Franklin. You know what? I find that God usually helps those who can't help themselves. The people that have given up on trying to help themselves. You know, and we have, we're in a culture where big business is the self-help books. And you know why it's big business? Because it doesn't work. Because if it worked, you'd read a couple of them and you'd be okay. But you read this one and it doesn't work. And so you read this one and it doesn't work. So you try this one. And you try, it's like that woman I was telling you about this morning in the strawberry patch. You, one of these self-help books has to work, right? I mean, they're published. They sold over a million copies, right? It has to work. But they don't work. You can't help yourself out of your mess. 
And the more you try, the more mess you make. God says, why don't you just take your hands off the wheel and just let me have control? Why don't you just let me deal with this situation? Can't let, the, can't let you, Lord. I can't trust that you know how to solve this problem better than I can. It's really what we're saying, isn't it? When we won't let God have control, we're saying, God, I think I know better how to solve my problems than you do. It, we forget who he is. We have to keep going right back to that first verse. Why does Zechariah have to tell us right from the beginning of this burden who God is? Because we're going to forget. When the battle comes, when we're surrounded by our enemies, we're going to forget and we're going to try to fight ourselves. We're going to try to have victory ourselves. We're going to strategize. We're going to have our generals and we're going to have our weapons and, and we're going to try to do everything just so. And God says, why don't you let me have a shot at it? I am the creator of heaven and earth. God has more power in his little pinky than all the nuclear bombs of this world combined. And you say, I don't know that I like that, that picture. Well, you go and you study up how many nuclear reactions are going off every second in the sun. And that's just one star. And this is how, this is how the author of Genesis puts it. He made the stars also. He's got so much power that, that making all of those nuclear reactions going off every second throughout the universe is, is like an afterthought. And it didn't take away from his power one bit. You know, if you took every single individual in the world and you took all the space in between the atoms and you crumpled all of us together, just our atoms, all the people of the world, we'd fit in the size of an apple. And we think we're so mighty. In all the world, seven billion strong, who knows how many will be in that day, is going to raise their fist and say, we're going to take out God's people. And God's going to say... <laughs> He's going to say, Jerusalem, people of Israel, you just sit back. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to take care of it. And the problems that we're going to face in this coming year, and maybe you're facing some problems already, I want to tell you, if you'll just let God have control of the situation and you would get out of God's way, He can take care of it. He might not do it as quickly he may allow things that you don't want him to allow. But this I can assure you, that if you get out of his way, it will be good. Not the good as you define it, but the way God defines it. From this, this passage, just simple little truth, that God often reveals himself in the midst of the trials. You know, we like to get out of trials as quickly as possible. Kind of joke around and we'll say things like, 
I want to learn whatever I need to learn from this trial so I can get through it as quickly as possible and not have any repeat performances. And you know, we, we, we all understand that. We all want to get through the trial as quickly as possible. But here's the thing. When we skip the trial, when we put it on fast forward, we miss the revelation of who God is. What if in the next time that you're facing a trial, when you're going through a difficulty, what if instead of saying, Lord, get me out of this trial as quickly as possible, you pray, Lord, reveal yourself to me through this trial. Here's what happens. The Jewish people suddenly recognized Christ as their Savior. It says they repented and they sought the one they had pierced. It's in there. They seek the one that they had pierced. Zechariah is referring to the cross here. It's so exciting to me to know how God in his foreknowledge and a Jewish man long before Jesus was ever born, long before the cross, he's talking about how the people of Israel, the Jerusalem people, are going to get on their hands and knees and they're going to repent because they're going to finally recognize Christ as the Messiah. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to because in the midst of this battle, in the midst of this trial, God is going to reveal himself to his people like he has never done before. That ought to do something for us. It didn't happen in the seven-day war or six-day war. It didn't happen then. They didn't all come back to Christ. I wish they would have. They didn't come back to the Lord. They didn't recognize Jesus as Messiah. Them. It's still yet to happen, but folks, what an exciting thought. It's going to happen. But in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your battle, God wants to reveal himself to you. And what a privilege. No wonder, no wonder we're supposed to count it all joy. When we go through these trials and tribulations. No wonder we're supposed to count it all joy. It's because God is saying to you, I have chosen you to go through this trial so I can reveal my character to you. And if we could remember that, wouldn't it change our whole perspective on the trial? Wow. God chose me to go through this situation, this, this trial. He picked this trial just for me so that he could reveal something about himself to me. It happened to Job. God revealed himself in the whirlwind. It happened to Elijah. God revealed himself in the still small voice. Over and over in Scripture, God reveals himself to his people through the battles through the tribulations, through the trials, and we see the character of God in the very midst of our suffering. If I could remember that, the trial would be worth it. If I could remember that, it would be easy to count it all joy. Because I would get excited about the fact that any moment now, God is going to reveal something about himself that I never knew before. Or help me to believe it in a way I've never believed it before.
That changes the whole picture of a trial, doesn't it? Flips it upside down. And it's why we can believe when God says it's good, even though we think it's evil, we can trust him. Because at the heart of the matter is God's going to reveal himself to us. And that's worth any trial it takes that we go through. I'm going to butcher the name of this. I looked it up on YouTube so I'd be able to pronounce it, and I'm going to butcher it anyways. I believe it's El Escorel. Escorel. Anyways, it's a beautiful cathedral in Spain. I believe it's about 50 kilometers from Madrid, the capital. And there they have housed 14 matriarchs. It's a burial place for some of their matriarchs. 14 of them are buried there. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Looking at YouTube, I mean, they've got paintings. I I think, I forget how many, I think they said they have like 10,000 books. I forget, I forget how many books. I was just like, I was so jealous. My library is not that big. It's just gorgeous. But they say that when it was created, that one of the archways was low and the king was nervous about it. And he was afraid that the arch was going to collapse. And so the king told the architect, he says, I'm really concerned about this arch. I'm really concerned it's going to collapse. And he says, I'm, I'm really, I really don't feel comfortable with this. He says, I want you to build a column in the mil- middle to support it. And the architect said, your majesty, it's not necessary. It'll hold. It will hold. And the king said, I'm not convinced. Build the column. The architect had the column built. And sometime later, after the king had died, the architect revealed that he, the column was a quarter of an inch short. It never held up the arch. And to this day, if you go and visit, tour guides will take and put something in between the arch and the column to show you, to demonstrate the arch still stands today and the column holds nothing up because the architect knew something that the king didn't know. Oftentimes we're like that king. We keep telling the Lord, build a column, build a column, hold this up, hold this up. God, I need you to support this. I need you to do this. And God says, I built it well. Trust me. Trust me. And I want you to know that anything that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords builds, He is the master builder. And He doesn't need our help. He will uphold this world by His righteous right hand. Amen. I'm sure not anything you haven't heard before, but I trust that the next time we face a trial, that we'll remember that God wants to reveal himself through that situation and that we can count it all joy. Amen. Let's stand together. Amen. Amen. Amy, dismiss us in prayer, please.